This is the third Sunday of Advent, and uh, it's called Rose Sunday for those uh, churches that have the rose-colored vestments, and we do. Somebody asked me at a clergy conference here about five or six years ago, Ernest Jeff Cohn said, do you have, have rose-colored vestments at St. Luke's? And I said, yes, and he said, I thought so. <laughs> Uh, the origin of Rose Sunday is about 800 years old, and um, it's, in its origins it had to do with the whole idea of lightening the atmosphere of Advent, which then was quite penitential in its, in its expression. And it comes from, uh, this Sunday comes from the Latin word gaudete, which means joy, and it is, th- that word is the beginning of the old introit in the liturgy, which is the what the choir sung to get every, the clergy in down the aisle. So they would, that was in the uh, the introit. So we we do this here, and of course it used to be in the Episcopal Church, uh, people who used rose-colored vestments were believed by some to be far too infected by the Romish cancer. <laughs> but it's interesting to note that in the new English common worship in the Church of England, uh, rose vestments are permitted and even suggested. So we've come a long way, baby. There's no doubt about that. In my sermon this morning, it's kind of a confused hodgepodge, and the last thing that I'm going to talk about, I realize I wrote way too much about, so we'll just see how it goes. Um, I want to talk to do some recapitulation about the season. Uh, and then to say a brief word about the readings, principally from Isaiah and from Matthew, because what's being talked about today is the issue of the coming of Christ in Advent, the Adventist Christ coming, Jesus being born, the whole uh, message that is part of this time of year. But uh, it's also about the second coming, and that's talked about in, in the epistle to James that we heard today. So I thought I might offer some views on the issue of the second coming and how Christians have understood this, but most particularly how Anglican Christians uh, understand, uh, for the most part, the second coming of Christ. In the season of Advent, the the main themes uh, are the necessity of being prepared, repentance, looking at your life in a new way. I mentioned... Last week and the week before, and I want to emphasize it because I've been studying on this a lot recently, uh, Advent is a preparatory season for Christmas in its beginnings. Um, in one part of the Christian wor- Western Christian world, it was a little bit lighter celebration and uh, expectation and so forth. And in Northern Europe, where our tradition came from, it was very penitential. It was like Lent. And in fact, it was called St. Martin's Lent in some parts of Northern Europe. So part of that has to do with the Bible. Because for 1,100 years, the Bible was in Latin. It was Jerome's translation that he did in about the 300s. So we had, for about 1,100 years, this was the Bible. So if you go to Matthew's Gospel and you read where John the Baptist is in the wilderness, 
and he says, penitentium agite, do penance. I'm not throwing cold water on the Latin Bible. It's a really good Bible. You know, most of us don't read Latin anymore, but that's, it is a good Bible, and it was a very, very good translation. And some of the early texts of, of Christianity, remember we have the Greek New Testament, but there were a lot of translations being made into Latin in the West even as early as the 200s. So Luther has the Greek New Testament now, and he looks at it, and he says, metatoi ete, do repent. He says, that's a diff- that word means something different. It doesn't mean uh, do penance. We don't have to have an armload of gladiolas on our knees going across, right? We have to think, how do we turn our lives around? Where do we change the direction where we're looking for happiness? And how do we do a, a sort of uh, emotional, spiritual, and mental reorientation? Father Thomas Keating, in his book, The Mystery of Christ, says that um, uh, repentance means uh, to change the direction where you're looking for your happiness. And he says we have three or four areas that are very important. They're emotional centers of where this has happened. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. So these are the ways in which we try to cope with the vicissitudes of life. And in a preparatory season, when you start thinking about this, uh, how, how have I gotten into some cul-de-sacs that maybe it would be good for me to get out of? Hope. Advent is a season of hope, understood uh, as honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. Expectation. Making effective use of the imagination to see what might be. You know, and it, it, it would seem otherwise to, to some, but we live in an age where people haven't got a lot of imagination. You know, that could be, there could be a lot of reasons for that. But l- learning to ha- allow your imaginative powers uh, to work uh, in you in a, in a way uh, that encourages playfulness and adventure, for example, uh, great things can emerge from that kind of stuff. So expectancy is important. Joy. The belief for Christians is the confidence that the uncertainties and conundrums of life will become less confusing and baffling as we are able to understand our place in God's plan. You know? I, I always hoped that uh, as I got older, I would know more because I was older and had more experience, and therefore, you know, and then you end up doing some of the same things over and over again that you knew before, you know. Now, the Dennis the Menace cartoon may be true as well, and that is Dennis the Menace said to Mr. Wilson in one cartoon, he said, you know, if I knew what I know now at seven, when I was five, I would have had a lot more fun, right? I would have been able to understand things a little bit better. But joy is a, is a quality that isn't living in a constant state of um, euphoria or giddy hilarity, you know, Snoopy. I always think that some people think that's what it means uh, to be joyful. 
And finally, Christian people uh, think about the theme that will be emphasized greatly during the this short Christmas season, and that is that we're a people of peace. We're about peace on earth. And peace on earth is, a, is an important thing, uh, and uh, it seems often very elusive, but uh, peace is what it is that we ought to be, we ought to be about. So in the, in the reading from the prophet Isaiah, I don't know whether this one, you, uh, there are three Isaiahs. There's Isaiah, there's Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah, and then there's Trito-Isaiah, <laughs> third Isaiah. Who cares? Well, the reason why that might be helpful in biblical study is, is that the, the uh, chronological period that's being talked about in the book of the prophet Isaiah is he, nobody could have lived that long, right? So it had to have been a school of Isaiah, which may be a fair way to say that. So I think today we're hearing from Deutero-Isaiah, I'm not sure which one, chapter 35. And Isaiah is talking about a theme that is part of the expectancy of the people of Israel and certainly at the time of John the Baptist uh, and uh, the birth of Jesus and Jesus' earthly ministry. And that was uh, the yearning for the new age and the belief that we are going to see God acting in human history in such a way as to produce uh, a return from exile and a sense of restoration. And what Isaiah is speaking about in historical terms is the return from exile in Babylon. So the people were in the Babylonian captivity and they're now beginning to come back into Jerusalem. And so the theme of restoration is very important. There are many people who believe that at the time of Jesus, the restoration or the return from exile had not yet been completed. And some Christians believe that in him... In his earthly ministry, they had now seen that occur in history. This is important because when I talk about the second coming and so forth, uh, I'm a subscriber to a view, and it turns out most many Anglicans are, that much of what we're talking about happens in human history, and much of the apocalyptic material in the New Testament has already occurred. So people who are thinking about the second coming, I don't want to go too far with this right now, uh, is a kind of Star Trek moment where God comes and we have a divine ethnic cleansing. And then everything gets sort of miraculously fixed, either here or somewhere else. And I think what Christian people believed from the jump was that uh, Christ will come again at the general resurrection, at the great resurrection. And we can understand that in more than one way. So Isaiah is talking about return from exile and God's restorative work in the world. In Matthew's gospel, we have John the Baptist once again uh, being the focus. And in this passage, John the Baptist is, is uh, sending a message to Jesus and saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You know, are you the one? And then Jesus speaks uh, very highly of John the Baptist and uh, how important he is. For Matthew and for Luke, when he talk, they talked about John the Baptist, they believed that he was the culmination of all of the Old Testament prophecies. It was central casting, send somebody here who's going to embody all of those characteristics, right, in him, in his announcement, what he's saying, and connect, make, connecting the dots back to Isaiah and 
all of the prophets of Israel and saying, this is what we're coming to now and this is how we, we need to, to see it in history. And so John the Baptist is a key person uh, in the middle of all this. And Jesus is saying when he's asked by uh, people about is he the one, he refers them to the circumstances that are occurring now in history. And another Advent theme that comes through in this is the whole idea of paying attention. You know, I guess uh, Buddha would say mindfulness. Pay attention. And that's a, a, a thing that's important to, to understand uh, as well. We don't spend a lot of time paying attention. You know, nowadays the reason is the remote, right? You watch something for 15 seconds and then you hit the other thing. You notice that I'm, uh, this is my baby boomer. I go like that. And you don't need to go like that anymore. The, the, signal, the signal makes the change. You don't need to go. Because I remember when we called it the clicker. And it went gunk gunk like that when you change the channel, right? So I'm still going this way. You know? Fortunately, nobody sees me do it much. And Nancy is very kind and never calls it to my attention. So what do Episcopalians believe about the second coming? I, I told you I just wrote too much, so I'm going to just uh, read a couple of lines, a few lines to you about this. We believe in a, in a, a form of, uh, I don't, can't remember the technical word, uh, of the, talking about the second coming, you know, Jesus coming again, as a millennialism. You know, there's pre-millennialism, post-millennialism. There's a, kind of, a whole lot of millennialists running around, and they're mainly people who have or get on the news and say around this time of year or something, the world is going to come to an end uh, a week from Tuesday. And I figured it out looking at all of the Bible prophecy about this, and this is when I know people have said this before, but this is when it's going to happen now. So what... Uh, Anglicans would say, which is probably very old, um, a millennialist believe that the millennium is not an actual physical realm on earth. They do not believe that it will last a thousand years. Um, and it is currently active in the world today through the presence of the reign of Christ, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and the activities of the Christian faith. So we're living in the midst of the, and this is what N.T. Wright's big new thing is, the, the biblical scholar. He, we're here now. We're the bringers of the kingdom of Christ and living in the middle of it, but we don't pay attention. We can't see it. So we need to focus uh, in some ways. So the discourse in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, and in most of the book of Revelation are seen as occurrences which have already happened or which are symbolic in nature and not to be taken literally. The Antichrist is looked upon figuratively and not as a real person. In a side chapel in the cathedral in Orvieto in Italy, there's a famous painting. Who painted that fresco? You written that? Um, and they have a, a portrait of the Antichrist who sort of looks a little handsome, only his eyes are crossed. 
<laughs> so that when you see him, he doesn't look like the real Jesus. He, he looks like he's... But uh, that's too literal. And uh, we're not talking about the Antichrist uh, in that sense. Many Christian denominations, including the Anglican Communion, Disciples of Christ, Lutheran, Orthodox, Reformed, Roman Catholic, and some Baptists continue to teach a millennialism. So I'm just putting it out there at the group level that if you run into anybody who's going to give you a big long thing about this, just say our tradition uh, does not accept this and understand this in the crudely historical fashion that many people seek to do. You know, so Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth and all of that stuff in the 1970s uh, is interpreting the book of Revelation in a way that is not how we might how we might do it. So the, the technical term for believing it had already happened in history is preterism. And that's what we mainly accept in our in our tradition. There are some Episcopalians on the fringe who don't accept this and are in the Hal Lindsey camp. You know, we're having more of that bubble to the surface these days, and that's not such a good thing in my opinion. So perhaps the best way to think about the second coming is to realize that Christ comes to us continually as we seek to be faithful, to know the truth, and to be instruments of his grace and love. So it is this coming of Christ that we celebrate and pray for in every age. Amen. <laughs>